You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Our guest on Preaching Source today is Calvin Pearson. Uh, in the summer of 2011, he joined the Crossroads Church pastoral staff. Uh, he and his wife, Jan, have been married for more than 35 years and have three grown children. And uh, Calvin comes to us with 40 years of ministry experience, including both pastoral ministries and also teaching at uh, Dallas Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and here at Southwestern. Uh, In fact, he taught some courses that I now teach, the course in rhetoric, uh, so he understands both classical rhetoric and also preaching. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Calvin. And it's good to be here, Barry, and it's good to meet you and get to know you a little bit. I uh, wish we had more time just to unite a dialogue about rhetoric and such like that, but uh, this will be fun doing this with you today. Well, let's talk. I'm intrigued by one of the things that you are doing here at our text-driven preaching conference. Uh, you're doing a workshop on improving your preaching through collaborative teams and long-range preaching. Can you talk to us a little bit about the value of those two things? Sure. Uh, long-range sermon planning, you have to know God's Word and you have to know your people. And you pull those two things together and you strategically and prayerfully map out what portion of God's Word will meet some of the needs in your people's lives. So that's really what long-range sermon planning is, is just thinking that through and mapping it out for three months in advance, six months in advance, a year. Uh, most guys, I don't, I don't know of anyone going past a year, uh, but a lot of guys do map out their sermons for a year. Remaining flexible, though, it's not like a concrete kind of plan. You've got to have to have flexibility in there. Uh, the other topic is a bit more intriguing in some ways because much less has been written on it, and that's collaborative sermon preparation. Not collaborative preaching, but collaborative sermon preparation. And that's where you get together and you work on a level of preaching. You have to agree upon what level you're going to be aiming at. You work on that with fellow believers, fellow pastors, maybe fellow staff members, but you work on the sermon preparation process together. And so that's part of what my conference was about. Okay. Uh, What are some practical ways that that you can give us to prepare? Uh, How do you do that, uh, a year-long preaching calendar? Well, you sit down and say, okay, uh, Lord, help me figure out what book might be a good book to preach through. And then you sit down and work through your exegetical outline. What is this text? How is this book put together? Uh, And that's the exegesis part of it. After you have your exegetical outline, then from that you build your preaching sections, or here's the fancy preaching word, your preaching pericopes. Uh, That's like a unit of thought. It may be several paragraphs. It may be a part of a paragraph, but it's the unit that you're going to preach, the unit of thought that you're going to preach. That has to be based upon your exegetical outline. If an exegetical outline has three major parts to the book, then that ought to give you a clue as to how to divide that book up. So you have to do your exegesis of the whole book before you can really plan how you preach the book. So it's a lot of work involved, but once you get the the work done, it helps your sermon preparation process go much more smoothly. What is the greatest thing a pastor can do to improve his long-range preaching planning? I think he needs to become more and more familiar with God's Word. 
so that he can say, I think the book of Jeremiah is what my people need, and I know what that book is about, and with a little more work, I can map out some sermons. But the more they know God's Word and the more they know God's people, the better the long-range sermon planning can be. Another thing that will help them is just do it. Say, by November, I'm going to have my sermons mapped out for the next year. Or by January, I'm going to have my sermons mapped out for the rest of the spring. Set yourself some deadlines. Here's what I'm going to get done, and I'm going to map that out and set the time aside to do it. Uh, So sometimes it's just a matter of saying, uh, set yourself a goal and achieve it. Uh, You know, uh, church life runs... uh Often, uh, church programming uh, follows the school year. Uh-huh. You have a kickoff in September, and you go to, you know, late spring, and then you do something special to the summer. Are are most pastors who are successful at long range uh, planning for their preaching? Are most of them operating on a church programming year or a calendar year? And the answer to that, Barry, is. <laughs> They're successful if they'll do it, <laughs> whether they use a, the calendar year or the, quote, church year. Either is fine. Just do it. Uh, I just came back from, uh, I was visiting up uh, at a church in Washington, D.C. Well, it's Mark Dever's church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he maps out his sermons. Uh, he had a little card, and they were mapped out through, I believe, January through the end of May. And he published a little card that says who's preaching and what they're preaching on uh, in advance. Uh, so apparently he does it not so much the whole year, but that chunk of time between January and May. I don't know what they'll do in the summer, and they're probably a fall thing. So you know, there's all kinds of ways to do it. Just do it is the main thing. You'll notice I didn't say Christian year because we're low church Baptist. <laughs> but that for many in, in Christendom, uh, you know, going yes. from Advent to kingdom tide yes. is, is, uh, is the way to do it. Uh, let's move to the subject of collaborative preaching. What are some of the advantages of collaborative preaching or collaborative planning for preaching? Yeah, a very important difference there. I don't, I'm not an advocate at all of collaborative preaching. Uh, I'm an advocate of collaborative preaching preparation. Uh, and some of the advantages are this. You get a synergy become from different pastors that you work with. Let me give one anecdotal example. Uh, when I was pastoring in Michigan, I had a group of pastors that we met together twice a year to work on a sermon plan. And we invited Grant Osborne to come one time. Grant Osborne of the hermeneutical spiral. So back in the 70s and 80s, even up to recently, he's kind of Mr. Hermeneutics. He came and was part of our group uh, as a kind of a guest scholar. He told us at that meeting, he said, guys, this is the way we should do hermeneutics. It's in a group of pastors that have respect for the Word and can challenge each other, uh, not just to have correct exegesis, but to have even better exegesis. And a group of pastors can do that. Uh, because most pastors, we stand up and do our stuff, and no one's going to challenge our exegesis because no one in our church knows what we know, and they respect our position, and so they don't challenge us. But in a group of fellow pastors, I can say, Barry, I'm not sure I agree with you on the way you're preach, trying to preach that passage. Have you noticed such and such and such and such? And you could do the same to me. And hopefully the response would be, you know, Barry, I hadn't thought about that before. You're right. That passage is saying this. 
which keeps us more accurate, keeps us accountable, and builds a bond between the pastors of friendship and uh, and brotherhood that is so needed in pastors' lives. So I think it's a great thing to do. I've, I've, I've had uh, several different groups, had one here in Texas years ago, uh, had a group in Michigan uh, uh, when I was pastoring up there. Uh, and even now I do some of that with the church staff that I'm on. The senior pastor and I meet together once a week to talk about the sermon that's going to be preached three or four weeks in advance, and we talk about the exegesis together. Uh, and then we meet with the rest of our staff, no, not the rest of our staff, the rest of the worship team staff, to talk about how to present this in a worship setting. So that's where the creativity comes in, about what songs we're going to sing, should we have a drama, uh, is there a video that would enhance this sermon. So uh, that's where the collaborative and long range begin to work together. Calvin, are there any disadvantages to this collaborative sermon preparation process? Yes, you've got to be careful that you have the right people in the group. If you have someone that's defensive and someone that doesn't really want to work together, it can destroy the group. And also, you want to be sure that you have a clearly defined goal and leader. Because if you get, just get together to brainstorm some passages, you're not accomplishing anything. You need to have a goal. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, that can be a lot of different things. We're going to accomplish a plan where we have an exegetical idea and a homiletical idea for each passage that we're working on. Or we're going to actually come up with an outline for each sermon. Or whatever level it might be, you've got to have, here's what this group is trying to decide. If you don't have a clearly defined goal, it's going to be fuzzy and people won't want to come and you won't know if you're getting the job done. So really, it's just good, good group dynamics. Uh, any team has to have a leader, has to have a goal, has to have a timetable. It's just practicing good small group dynamics, but applying it to a sermon setting. Calvin, you've been a professor of, of preaching and rhetoric for a number of years. Could you identify, say, three to five rhetorical strategies that you think would help most preachers with their preaching? Oh, sure. You're, they're, uh, I know we could dialogue about this a lot, Barry. That would be fun to do. Kind of three things stand out in my mind. Uh, one comes from Aristotle. Aristotle said that the way our brains are made— and obviously Aristotle is not a Christian, so he's not not same view of God that we have, but he did see us as being created. He said the way our brains are made is we think in what he called topoi, which is the Greek word for place. And what he meant by that is we have certain set ways of thinking that we automatically understand, such as question, answer. I mean, everybody understands that structure. It's a simple structure. Or another structure would be, let me tell you three things or three steps to get to some place. We understand what that is. Or I'm going to talk about the negative and the positive. I mean, there's all kinds of structures like this that when you state them, we immediately know what the structure is. And when I'm preaching, I look for those common structures in the text. And if I see one, I'll say, now what Paul is doing here is he's answer, asking a question and then answering it. So let's look at his question and then look at his answer. So that, that topoi that Aristotle came up with is a common structure that everyone will quickly grasp and understand. If, big if, if that's in the text, 
then use it. Use it so that the clarity of the text can come through. Uh, so that's from Aristotle. Uh, much more modern than that, uh, a guy named I.A. Richards wrote a lot about metaphor. Uh, metaphor is such an important element in preaching. It's talking about something that you don't know and using something that you know to explain it. Uh, just got talk, talking with a guy that did a, a dissertation on some of the metaphors that Paul uses. Uh, uh, and I, I can't remember what they are right now, but those metaphors in the scriptures that, uh, well, here's one from the Old Testament. God is a rock. Well, it doesn't literally mean that he is a piece of stone, but this metaphor helps us grasp the unknown by giving us the known. And that concept of metaphorical language, that's what preaching is. It's taking something that people know, using that to help them understand what they don't know in the text. So I like to think about preaching in a sense as a very metaphorical thing that we do, which means it's right and good to have a lot of metaphors in our preaching. Then the last thing uh, comes from uh, a weird guy uh, named Kenneth Burke. Uh, difficult to read, but he said, persuasion doesn't take place unless there is identification. Or another way to say it, you can't communicate something unless you somehow connect with that person with whom you're trying to communicate. Uh, he called it identification. And when we preach, we must be sure that we are using language, we are using illustrations, we are using explanations that the people will identify with. Uh, we bring up something that they say, yeah, that guy knows what I, where I'm living. He understands me. I identify with him. So uh, that's another very important rhetorical strategy that I think we need to apply to all of our preaching. So that's three right there, Barry. We could probably go on about... Uh, and, and what's neat about, about rhetoric is it's true. All, of, all truth is God's truth. And whether Aristotle wrote it or Augustine wrote it, uh, if it's true, it's God's truth, and it's good, solid communication principles that we need to apply to our preaching. And we shouldn't be afraid of rhetoric. We should see it as our friend uh, that helps us communicate God's Word more clearly. So I think it's a great thing to study. Hmm. Calvin, uh, what are some of the positive trends that you've observed in contemporary preaching? That's hard to answer because contemporary preaching is so broad. Uh, a trend that I've observed in a negative kind of way is that I see more, call it, non-biblical topical preaching, where you have a topic that is really relevant and very, very good, but it really isn't from the text. And the biggest area where this is done is when guys preach series on family. There aren't that many texts that the, talk about the family, and yet guys will, will do a long, long series on the family, and it's good stuff, but it really is not from First or Second Timothy. It's really from First or Second Gary Smalley or James Dobson. It's good stuff, but it's not the text. So I see a trend in people wanting to be relevant, which is good, but, but they don't know the text well. They haven't immersed themselves in the Scriptures and so in their desire to be relevant, they preach sermons that aren't linked to the text. So that's a negative thing that I see. But the positive thing I see is 
there's a lot of guys who are digging into the text very deeply, and uh, people are coming to it by the droves. Let me give you one concrete example. Uh, again, I was up at Mark Dever's church, and uh, the situation is such their, their sanctuary is kind of unusual. You almost face each other. And I was sitting there looking at the crowd while he was preaching for an hour. The crowd, I was the old guy. There was hardly anybody else with white hair. They were all in their 30s or younger. And I went, this is great. Here's all these millennials digging into God's Word, digging into very deep exegesis for an hour and coming right out of the Word. So I see that trend as well, uh, both in him, uh, Max Chandler's doing the same thing, and, and a host of other guys that are really preaching the text, and people are responding to it. Uh, so that's the good side I see as well. We've been talking today on Preaching Source with uh, pastor and professor of preaching, Calvin Pearson. Brother Calvin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Barry.